Hi, this is Mark Haskell-Smith, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. I prefer mine with the salted rim. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Mark Haskell-Smith, author of Blown, Heart of Dankness, Naked at Lunch, so many more books. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for the cold drink. <laughs> Actually, I'm here because I'm at your place. <laughs> I know, but thanks for the cold drink anyway. I really appreciate it, having an excuse to have a cold drink on my own couch. Anyway, uh, you're on the back end of the tour of Blown, the novel. How, how did the tour go? Um, that's, I'm going to ask you that first, and then I have a ton of other questions. I'll, so you don't have to memorize everything that I ask you. Okay, cool. Uh, uh, yes, the tour is over. This will be the last. I'm on the, I'm you're the last obligation I have. Um, I mean, it was a short th- tour. We just did uh, an event in Pasadena for LA friends. And then, uh, what was it? Houston, Austin, and Dallas. Um, boom, boom, boom. And uh, that's it. And that, that's quite different from, because uh, your last two books were nonfiction. And you really kind of hit the road with those, didn't you? Um, well, actually, what's funny was with Naked at Lunch, I didn't do any touring. Oh, no, I went to San Francisco, but I did a radio tour. So I one morning at like 3.30, yeah, 3 in the morning, I sat in my kitchen on a landline and went every eight minutes, they bounced me to another radio station doing all the morning shows starting on the East Coast and coming across the Midwest till finally at like... Seven o'clock in the morning here, I was doing all the, and seven and eight, I was doing all the West Coast shows. And I must have talked to like, I don't know, like 30 or 40 radio stations. And that was like really intense. And like, you know, you're there for like three hours, kind of saying the same thing and getting like the variety of all the different DJs around the country, some of whom were really cool and into it, and some who were like really, you know, I remember one guy in Nebraska who was just like, Naked at lunch, so you're a nudist. What are you, some sort of exhibitionistic freak? And I just, like, at that point, I'd already done, like, 19 of these things, and I just, like, was quiet for a minute. And I, then I was, and then I could hear him starting to sweat on the other end, and I said, you know, I'm a journalist. I wrote about this. Yeah. And he was, you know, baffled. Like, oh. And they, he got me off. But then other people, like, Man Cal Mueller in Chicago and a guy in Boston named Mike Shue and... Some other DJs, people I'd never even heard of, but the drive-by shows. You know, they were actually really funny, and they were engaged, and it was, you know, they were into it. They're like, nudists, oh, we can we can riff about that for 10 minutes. And so it was really kind of fun. Oh, that's cool. That, that's interesting. That, so that was kind of like those morning show where it's like, hey, it's Tchotchke and Omo, and we're going to boo, like kind of that. Yeah, the Z Morning Zoo, big, big, wah, wah, wah. Hey, what were knockers like? Bing, wah, wah. You know, and you're like, kind of like, well, they were, you know, like had sunscreen on them. You know, what do you want to, you know? But they, so they made jokes, but they were also like appreciated. You know, some of them were thoughtful and some of them were really just like milking it for like, oh, you know, the, nudists you see on the beach aren't the nudists you want to see on the beach <laughs> you know like that then i was like well go to spain or france and you might want to see them my friends so you know yeah. so uh 
And then some of them were actually really thoughtful and kind of into it. So it was really, so that was my tour. And it was like a three hour tour that covered the entire country. And it was really an interesting experience. And a rad experience to get 40 cities from your kitchen. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> True. I mean, I'd never gotten that kind of media coverage on anything ever. I mean, and then that media-wise, the book blew up, you know. It was on, the BBC picked it up, and I was doing I was doing radio interviews in Australia and Ireland and England. I did some in, uh, you know, in Spanish for, in Miami. It just was crazy. Yeah, when um, what what was the uh, what was the incent? No, what do you? How do you say this word in English? Um, <laughs> what was the idea point for Naked at Lunch when you said I have a story here, or did you pitch it and then go, Oh dear God, I have to get naked? Oh, uh, when I sold the proposal. Yeah. Well, I had uh, spent a long time working on a proposal for uh, about all this food that's going extinct around the world, and I talked to the slow food people in Italy and I had a whole like you know big proposal and nobody wanted to do it and they're like well you're not a celebrity chef you have no you never written about food before and I had like literally a 300 word just sort of note to myself about the nudist thing and and my editor at Grove Jameson Stoltz said hey uh just you got anything else and I said, well, I got this. I'll just, I sent it to him just as like, because, you know, we've worked on a bunch of books together. He's a friend. And he presented it at the editorial meeting. And they and literally, I gave it to him on a Monday. And on Tuesday afternoon, my agent called and said, what is this I'm getting an offer for? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Apparently, everyone just started laughing. And we're like, yeah, just buy it. Sounds great. Make him go around the world naked. That's hilarious. That's got to be the... Um the easiest proposal you ever wrote without thinking it was a proposal. <laughs> yeah, I'm now, I'm now spoiled. I like now I have to toil on these other proposals, and uh, yeah, that was a fun one. So if a good idea is a good idea, and you know, it, if it sort of hits that, I don't know what are the marketing people call that sweet spot, right. then you don't really. Need I mean, it helped that I had done what six other books with them so they knew me and they liked me and they trusted that I could deliver a decent book but and what's what's good well and now I'll, I'll tie back uh, blown into this is what's great about naked at lunch is you really keep your voice and that voice is so honed I feel like from your novels and it's almost like when you read blown you go this is the same guy that wrote naked at lunch it wasn't uh, um it's, you know, because there's no, it's not a dry book, uh, Naked at Lunch, the nonfiction. No, it's all sweaty and clammy. And <laughs> it's, <laughs> no, it's, uh, no, I mean, you try to approach everything with like, I mean, I want to write books that are entertaining. I want the reader to have fun. If they learn something in a nonfiction book, that's, that's gravy. But I really want them to just have fun and kind of experience it with me i mean with novels it's it's a different thing because you're trying to really bring the character's world to life so in a way i feel like i'm I'll take myself out of it a little more and the character's voice kind of takes over but again at the end of the day my goal is to make it fun so fun and so compelling and pull you so so deeply into it that you can't put the book down 
right? It's just a, you know, I love when people say, oh, I, you know, I inhaled that book. I read it in a day. Yeah. You know, to me, I'm like, that score, that's yeah. what I'm going for, you yeah. know. Don't lend it to all your friends. Tell them to buy it. <laughs> well, that's just good advice for everything. Yeah. Would you lend, you know, your, your apple to your friends? No, they would have to go buy their own apple. Right, right. Yeah, um, do you feel like when you so because you were off the novel for two books, so going back to the novel, do you feel like working on the nonfiction kind of informed a different way to approach it, or do you feel like you just went right back onto the old bicycle and the same gear that kind of you had before? Well, actually, I wrote Heart of Dankness, and then I wrote Raw, a love story. <laughs> then I wrote Naked at Lunch. Then I, so I had one in between, but. Okay. But no, I didn't forget how to write novels. And um, well, not forget, but did it inform you? Did, did it inform you in a different way, or am I overthinking this? I mean, the, the idea, the hope is that you get better every book. So yeah. the the work you put in on whether it's nonfiction or an essay or whatever, a memoir, uh, you know, you're a better writer when you approach your next project, whatever it is. So I, I I'm happy that I feel. For me, at least, I feel like I'm growing. I'm getting better with every book, and um, which is why it irritates me. People go like, "Moist is my favorite of your novels." I'm like, "Really?" Because that was like 20 years ago, and I think I've gotten better. But, but, um, but, uh, yeah, you just you just keep you know working hard. And you know what's interesting is like the more you know about writing, and the more you know about putting a book together, and how hard it is to do it the longer it takes you to do it because you really want it to be so good and you know more about how to make it really good. So you're really putting, not that I'm sitting here bragging like my books are so good, but you really try harder. I don't know. You always try hard, but you know more. So you've got more skills. So, um, yeah. And I, and I mean, like writing a novel is just one of the weirdest things in the world to actually tackle it's what it's it's almost a really bad idea then what then because the, the only way to really learn how to write a novel is to write a novel essentially even if you go through mfa programs and stuff it's it's an odd bird no yeah absolutely i mean the the thing is and there's and there's and it's hard to describe to people too it's like well there are, you can tell them and they don't believe you but like you start with an idea and you start to sort of build it and explore it and then the characters kind of take over. And at a certain point, you're sure that it's just terrible. You're, you know it's the biggest mistake you ever made. And yet, if you just persevere, it kind of coalesces at some point. And then it becomes a th at least a first draft. And then you can see what it is. And then you can really go in and fix it and start making it better and stuff. So it's just such a process-oriented thing. You have to invest in the process right or enjoy like i enjoy the process even though if it's sometimes really frustrating and so and you have to i think otherwise it'd just be really terrible i i've had um people working on their first their first novels and they'll just complain to me they're like oh my god i do not know what i'm doing this is the worst idea i've ever had this is just terrible and i'm like i just laugh i'm like that just means you're a writer welcome to the club it's like yeah, right on track. Yeah. Right? I'm on page 200. It's It sucks. What do I, I'm going to throw it away. I'm like, no, you're right on track. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keep going. But and the other thing is, it's not for everyone. I mean, you know, some people are better short story writers. Some people probably should, you know, play music or something or do something else. I mean, I would not, you have to really want to be a writer because it's, 
Well, one, the, it's really hard work, and then there, and the rewards are so small. You, you have to just take satisfaction in the process and, oh, I finished a book, I managed it, it got published, I'm very fortunate. And you, that, that has to be enough for you because if you're like, oh, like, and it wasn't a bestseller and I didn't win the booker, then you're just like, you know, because you never, it never will be and ne you never will win the booker. You have to be just happy with what you did, you know, because you're, you're communicating with people and that's kind of groovy. Yeah. And I also feel like uh, what I feel lucky that I get to be in the club of weirdos because I just feel like we're a club of just weirdos and misfits. And it's one of the only clubs I kind of understand, if that makes sense. Oh, no, totally. My uh, uh, my friend David Eulen, who's a book critic and a, a really good writer in his own right, said that something that I think is really important. It's like you publish a book and you enter sort of this stream of conversation of Western culture or world culture now, because the world is getting so connected, um, that's gone on since the beginning of time, since people started putting, scribes started putting stuff on papyrus. You know, you're now part of that, you're in that river and, you know, appreciate that. It's, it's really a cool thing and not everyone gets the opportunity, you know? Yeah. Um, and speaking of Moist, Moist was your debut novel. Do you remember the um, Do you remember the excitement of getting of having that published, and the you know what the emotions that you had then? Like, can you bring yourself back to? The oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I was, you know, because so many people, you know, I was a screenwriter at the time, and so many people were like, "You can't do it. You can't do that. Put it away." Why don't you do a rewrite for some money? Don't do that. Who was saying this? Oh, like some agents, you know. Oh, they're making money off you on that. Yeah, the agents were making money on me doing rewrites and not on like this goofy book I was writing. And and then I actually changed agencies to, I went to Endeavor, which was a new agency in 2001. Mm -hmm. And they were just like, oh, we love this book. Why don't you finish it? We'll help you find a book agent. You know, so they were super supportive. Like they were really about like, just express yourself, do what you want to do. And, you know, we'll figure out a way to monetize it later. And um, and so when it and, and I'd been rejected by like writing programs, I thought, oh, I should learn how to write prose, even though I was a produced screenwriter, yeah. you know, and and I'd had plays produced. And the, so then I applied to some of these places and they'd say, no, <laughs> you know, I mean, I submitted chapters that are still in that book <laughs> that they, but they said, no, you know, you're not good enough to be in our program. And so when I've got an agent and then I got published, then I was just like, you know, got to do the big, you know, fuck you dance to all those people like, Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. And, and actually, I mean, later, years later, I met someone who was one of the people that rejected me uh -huh. and <laughs> Because we were teaching in a workshop together, and she said, "Oh, it's was it was really all for the best because we would have ruined you. You know, we would have put all these rules and all these things and all given you all this bad advice, and and we would have ruined that kind of like voice that came out of there, you know. And so I think she was just being nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what else is intriguing? Um, going from screenwriting to the novel, um, I find um, that 
I find this among like students who are who you know they have produced screenplays that they have a hard time realizing to, they they can get out of the structure and just really just relax with the novel. Did did you have that on your first uh, book? Yeah, I think so. I mean, looking back, I mean, someone someone a student once. Not one of my students, but some student somewhere. One sent me an email saying, did you know that Moist is 200 scenes without any backstory? And I was like, and I just thought, yeah, just like a screenplay. And, um, and you know, now all, all my books have lots of backstory and, and are more internal. But, um, yeah, you, you, it's a totally different kind of writing. Yeah. And, if, and screenwriters really have trouble... I'm, I should. I mean, I, I don't mean to generalize, but yeah. a lot of screenwriters have trouble trying to write f- fiction, prose fiction, or even nonfiction because they just don't get how to tell a story that's got some interior yeah. interiority to it. They're all action, and they're no, you know, they all they're all about writing scenes, and they're not really about going inside and and what are people's emotional life like, and that's what that's what novels are all about, right? It's the emotional life of a character, so. So, uh, you know, I had to wrestle with that a little bit, but, you know, once I started writing prose, I was like, why? I was really literally just said to myself, why am I wasting my time writing screenplays? Uh-huh. You know, because you can do whatever you want. You can explore anything. Nothing is off limits. There's no one saying, A, we can't afford that, or B, we focus group that and no one wants to see that, or C, you're fired, we're going <laughs> to have someone else write it. You know, you can just do what you want. And yeah, you don't make any money at it, but artistically, it's really satisfying. Yeah. And what's what's funny about getting beat up on notes for uh, for screenwriting is uh, I, I feel like when we're, when we're working on our notes, when, our, when we're working on our own material and we have our own name on it, um, for me, I'm beating myself up as the self-critic of the book, going, "Oh, this is going to go nowhere. This is this is this is just terrible. This is, I I don't know if you have those voices in your head <laughs> or not." Uh, just a little bit. I yeah. mean, I need medication. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the voices to me are like they just ask questions, like, "Is this good enough? Uh-huh. Is this interesting enough? Can you make this character, this scene, this whatever more interesting?" Can you make it weirder, you know? And so, and I'm always looking for that kind of spark in a scene or in a character, something that kind of turns me on, you know? That's like that weird little transgressive moment that where I go like, ah, oh, now this character's come alive for me, right? And um, you don't even, you don't get to have that at all in the movies or in screenwriting or television, right? Because they just hire an actor who comes in and brings their own thing to it, you know? Right. And that's really their job. Um, so for me, it's like, it's, it's a different thing in it, but it's, it's really rewarding, you know? And, and speaking of, uh, the characters with the bang, um, the Piet and, uh, Pete, Pete is it Pete? <laughs> Pete and, uh, Pete and blown. Um, I hadn't read the book when I saw you read and you're like, Oh, this is, this is my favorite character. And then when I got to that, when I finally got to him, I was just like, Oh my God, this guy's rad. <laughs> what was, um, speaking of like just going to the nth degree on a character and going wait he needs to have this uh he needs to have this um functionality a big cock etc uh that that's one place you can really like expand you know but i think on sexual terms too which i'll discuss with my therapist tomorrow but today this is with you (laughs) i don't even know what i asked you i uh if what i think you're saying well i mean here's the thing 
when I originally wrote the character, he was not a little person. He was okay. just a regular person. And, and as the book moved on, I just thought he just wasn't interesting enough. He was like, you know, I said like, well, and then I don't know. It just, he sort of, his character sort of told me in a weird way. I know this sounds like a little new agey or something, but it was just like, look, just make me a little person. And then, and then, you know, and I, I did a little research and people who have dwarfism, their genitals are normal size. So even if it's not that big, it looks big. So then I thought, oh, then this becomes, because the character was kind of like a big, you know, swinging dick in all the scenes. But now to make him a little person, it adds this sort of edge to it and a kind of dynamic to it. And, he, and then he is still a big swinging dick, but he's got a he's got a sort of a man he's got a reason for it right it's like it manifests out of his like being insecure or being picked on his whole life and so he's 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 got something to prove and then and then other stuff just started coming to me from it like the idea that since he is you know four foot eight or nine and he's you know he's always looking at people's asses like he learns to read them like you know some some sort of Kulo savant you know <laughs> he can they talk to him in this weird way and and that's how he's able to seduce all these people because he knows he knows these women he knows what they want so it all just once i made that sort of adjustment he he became sort of fully formed he just like grew out of it you know i i don't feel like it's a new agey thing to to do i feel like when you're working on a character and they inform you it's because you've developed a relationship with the character on the page so there comes a point i uh, do you believe, i mean i know it sounds new agey and i always say this this is hippie shit but this is this actually is what happens is the you have a weird relationship with your character and all of a sudden your character tells you dude i'm this yeah always and yeah and i think you're right it is that cuz you're thinking about them your uh, your subconscious is kind of processing them in your world, and and every character at some level is an expression of your worldview, right? So it all comes out of your subconscious or your unconscious or whatever. And so, yeah, I think that's it. The longer you sit with them, the more they'll tell you, which is maybe another reason why I like writing slower now. Um, but yeah, they they'll tell you what they want to do and then if you make the try to make them do something they'll really rebel. Yeah. If it, because it's it's not in their personality and the personality that you've created for them. And then it comes off and then for the reader it comes off as phony. Right? right? And that's the worst thing you can do. That's why I tell students never to outline because then if your character wants to do something that's organic to the character and makes sense for the character and you're like, oh, oh, but the outline, this has to happen. And you try to force them into it. Then it's just like it's just bullshit. Yeah. yeah. And the readers sense that, I think. Yeah, totally. I, I'm, I'm, I'm like against outlines until it's like the third or fourth draft. And then you got to plug the scenes of what you have. Uh, laying laying pipe, we call that. Is that what it is? Yeah, because you want to make sure when you flush the toilet, it goes all the way down in a straight line yeah, <laughs> out yeah. the end. Uh, otherwise, it spills all over things. But but that's you know that's pretty easy to do. You you I mean stories are logical stories. Even if the craziest story has a kind of logic to it, yeah. and if you if you violate the logic, then I think that throws the reader out of the book. And they just think it's, you know, they're just like, oh, this book doesn't make any sense. You know, as long as you can 
you can anything can happen. You can have things in outer space with giant ants or whatever, to quote a Blondie song. Um, and it'll, as long as you make it makes sense, it, it it's all good, you know. Yeah. But it's once you sort of violate that or just get sloppy, then readers are like, no. And that that intrigues me too, because when I've you know even with like sci-fi writers, they they literally have to build a world. But even if you're doing literary fiction, you are building a world kind of in the in the same way, which has kind of blown my mind. I didn't realize that until the last few years. Yeah, it's exactly the same way. I mean, even if it's a world that's familiar to to readers, like it's you know oh it's an apartment with a kitchen and a bathroom. Um, it's you still have to build that world, and you have to build it like through the character's eyes. So not only you know, so you're adding also this layer of interpretation, like what a character notices is not necessarily what I, the writer, might notice or what I even want my readers to notice, but the character is doing it and it's all about building the character. Yeah. So, yeah. And um, when did you, you when did you start teaching when you were uh, had you been were you teaching screenwriting or were you teaching novel writing at UCLA Extension? Uh, I've I've always been pretty much always teaching novel writing, fic yeah. fiction or nonfiction. Um, I started teaching fiction at UCLA, I want to say in like 2002. Oh, right after Moist. Yeah, Moist came out and I met the people there and they were like, do you want to teach a class? And I was like, sure. And I did that for a couple of years and then I taught at the University of Nebraska for a couple of years and then, you know, I started teaching at UC Riverside. I've been there. So we're in our 10th year now, so. Wow. So at the beginning, did you did you even think that um, having a career as also as a professor was going to be your path uh, when they approached you in the UCLA days? No, not really. I sort of saw the writing on the wall with Hollywood, you know, because, you know, kind of the business was changing a lot. Studios were consolidating. There were just less work out for people. And this, TV, this sort of renaissance of TV stuff that's happening now with all the streaming channels, that wasn't happening yet. So it was like, do I want to work on a TV show? No, I want to keep writing books. So how do I make a little bit of money so I can keep doing what I do? Um, so I just sort of fell into it. And I suppose if I'd been really thinking about it, I would have tried to get a regular like tenure track job instead of teaching at these graduate schools. And But... But at the same time, if you did get that tenure track job, do you feel like that that would have changed your output uh, of work? Or oh, totally. I mean, I wouldn't be able to say, oh, I'm gonna take three months off to move to move to Amsterdam and smoke a bunch of weed and write Heart of Dankness. You know, like what's your dean gonna say to that? Or oh, hey, I have to go hiking up in the Alps with a bunch of nudists for this book and take a cruise. You know, then that's when your dean goes, no, you have to teach. Yeah. So having a part-time faculty position, prof professor job or whatever it is, uh, works really well for me. Yeah. And I got to say, when I see you with, uh, with your new students, when like, especially when they came to the, you know, you're reading at blown of blown at a uh, um, Romans, it's just so endearing. Cause the, the ex they're just so excited to like take photos with you. There's that, there's that beauty of the, Oh, they're, they're at the beginning of their careers. I, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I also, you know, I'm always, I tell them all, it's like, look, I didn't know anybody. Uh, my parents weren't readers. They were never supportive of me being in doing any kind of art. Yeah. You know, it's always, it was like, you know, you get a, 
movie produced and they go see it in the theater and they're like, yeah, but you know, don't you have something you need to fall back on? And I'm just like, yeah, you know, you know, so I didn't have that. I know history of that. I didn't know anyone when I came to town. I didn't nobody in, I knew nobody in New York in the publishing world. You know, it was just a goofball from Kansas. Yeah. And so if, if I can do this, anybody can, yeah. you just have to work really hard. Yeah. You know? And I think there's something special too about, um, yeah, being the, being that, having that like insatiable desire of, you know, the lunacy to, to just go to a place that, especially if your family doesn't, um, doesn't get it. Were they, were they like going, you need to get a union job or you maybe should be a butcher? What was, what was kind of there? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you know, uh, well, my dad had split when I was like 10 and he was kind of a, you know, he's one of those guys that just bummed around for years and then joined the Peace Corps in his 60s and bummed around Europe. I mean, I, I guess it's I'm just saying he's a bum. Um, <laughs> but um, but my mom was always like, well, you know, I hear the post office is hiring. I mean, she just thought that the pinnacle of achievement was to get a good job or just a job that was like to be a policeman or a post be a postal employee or some or anything that just had security right. and a pension plan and and you could even say the writers guild has a pension plan right you know she just didn't believe it you know no that's not right yeah so that was you know so but you know at a certain point you're just like you just don't listen anymore yeah. you know she didn't read the book she didn't know so yeah and then plus plus uh, you start to find your tribe among other writers who also didn't have this you know didn't have the same support network and we all kind of clash together and go oh wait we're as fucked up as oh we're the same fucked up that's cool you know yeah no i mean that's the thing you you have to be i mean i'm saying like you have to do this but you know you should be self-propelled you know if you need mommy and daddy's pat on the head you know you don't be an artist don't be yeah. a writer unless they're really rich yeah. right and then they don't care because yeah. they know because yeah it just you know my family was working class kansas city yeah. you know my mom raised three boys she was a bank teller um so you know you know she was very afraid probably afraid we'd end up like our father you know like bumming around joining the peace corps you know yeah and also i mean being uh you know especially writing that it's I think it's scary to people when you say, now I'm a writer. I mean, I had a lot of pushback, even from friends, where I was friends with them for a long time, and then they would make fun of me for trying to be a writer. And they're kind of like, who do you think you are? And then when stuff started coming out, then they were like, oh, I'm so happy to be on your journey. I don't know if that worked with you, too. Oh, of course. Of yeah. course. I mean, I was really careful not to tell people like I'm going to be a writer. You know, I always like I always think of like, you know, it's like a uh, Beverly Hillbillies episode when Jethro's decided I'm going to be a best selling author now. You know, it's like, OK, son, here's a typewriter. You know, and it's like, you know, you kind of just do it. And I just remember I was sort of a late came to it sort of late. Um and I just was like, one day I was wrote something and it was kind of good. And I thought, all right, I'm going to start taking this seriously. And really, because I was always in it. I always read. I read tons. I still do. And and. But I didn't know how they did it. 
You know, like you go to a movie and or you read a book that's really good. You're like, how did they do that? Like it was like magic to me. It was baffled me. But then you start to unpack it and like think about it and try it. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's how you do it. And you figure it out. Like I never took any writing classes. And I would like to add that if I had, I probably would have been a better, more successful writer sooner. <laughs> so please sign up for an NFA program near you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and UC Riverside, you can even do the low residency. Yeah. Plug, uh, plug. <laughs> plug. But uh, I never took a writing class. And, uh, for your novel, you never. For nothing. For not for screenwriting, nothing. So I, uh, yeah, my MFA is in cinematography. Oh, okay. Uh, now, the, but getting that degree in cinematography, that's also storytelling as well. So that kind of would translate, I would think. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. And I think just reading a yeah. lot translated. But then, it, like, you know, I've told this story before, but, you know, when I saw some Joe Orton plays at the taper, they kind of blew my mind. I literally remember sitting in the theater having like going, I'm having an epiphany. I'm going to be a writer because I want to do what Joe Orton just did. Yeah. And did you did you start off uh, writing plays? Is that? The, the, yeah. 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 And I will say I did. Um, I studied at Playwrights Horizons, although I wasn't studying as a playwright. We studied. We were sort of there as like directors, theater directors. But you'd have to write your own thing and bring it in. Or well, actually, the best classes were you would come in and then you would pick a card out of a with a word on it like tunnel or danger or fire and you would have like five to ten minutes to come up with an idea to represent that theatrically and there was a pool of actors and actresses you could work with and you would have to just mount something with them you'd have like 15 minutes prepare and then you'd put it up and just sometimes it would just be a gesture sometimes it would just be an image um, sometimes it could be like a little scene you improvised with the actors, but it was really all about like thinking on your feet, being creative and being unafraid to fail. Yeah. Like most of the time those things were turned out, were like complete disasters, but then you talk about it and how you could have done it. Anyway, it was really good training ground. And also what I love about that is it kind of taps that right brain that's always, that we're always trying to quiet. If you make somebody, if you put a gun to their head and go, write this story within five minutes and don't stop writing. And then all of a sudden that the left brain that's telling you, no, no logic, logic, it goes away. Yeah. Right. And, and once you like fail a couple of times and you realize nothing bad happens, yeah. you're not laughed out of New York. You're not like people don't go, Oh, talentless. You know, nobody cares. It's like, Oh, you tried, you failed, try again. You know, it's that yeah. Beckett, it's the Beckett thing. Try, fail, try again, fail better, you know, yeah. that was beaten into us. And that is the best advice for writers you could ever give. Yeah. Cause you're going to fail. Right. And it, it's all, yeah, everything's failure. And the, even manuscript after manuscript people. And I love how, especially when people go, Oh my God, that book was so easy to read. And they think it was easy to write, but those are the hardest books to write is the ones that are easy to read. It seems. Yeah. This is, this is my cross that I bear. Like I try to explain to people like, wow, it was so breezy. It was so fun. It's just like Elmore Leonard. It's like, yeah, but you don't. It's one, it's not like Elmore Leonard. And two, you really work hard to get to make the prose so energized 
that it just kind of crackles on the page and people can't stop reading. It's like making delicious food, you know? It's like you can't stop eating until they're kind of bloated at the end. They're like, oh, I can't believe I ate the whole thing in one sitting. But, you know, that's what you try to do. And it, it, it's a lot of work. I like that you brought up Elmore Leonard because I believe it was, um, what do you call it? The... <laughs> We're, we're we're casual here. We can have yeah. things beep, beeping in the background. Oh. <laughs> uh, but I believe your work has been compared to Elmer Leonard before. And I have tried to read Elmer Leonard books from cover to cover. And I find it so hard. And yours are so much easier. Blowing smoke up your ass. But at the same time, it is so much easier to read your, your novels than it is to read an Elmer Leonard novel to, for me. Yeah, I mean, and and I'm not dissing Elmore Leonard at all. His some of his books are fantastic, right? Yeah. Is particularly like his Detroit books, but you know, I think he wrote what he wrote like 90 books or something, yeah, and yeah. and um, and I think at a certain point he just hit on this sort of formula of like wise cracking bad guys, da da da, and it just became his thing. And sort of like Carl Hyacin, you know, I I get compared to him too, but it's like. They're not really the same, and his early books are great, but they're not really the same beast at all because, you know, we're talking about different stuff. It's, I don't know, for me, those are, they're like kind of facile comparisons. And then when I go to, you know, my books are published in Europe, and then I, you know, compared to like whole other, you know, people, you know, like, you know, whether it's T.C. Boyle or, uh, uh, James Elroy or, um, you know, Hunter Thompson, people like that, you know, it's just, it's just a different thing. I'm, but, but you know, I, I, I like Elmore Leonard, some of his books, but I, it's someone, people are like, this is like lightweight Elmore Leonard. It's like, well, you're just not really thinking, <laughs> you're not really thinking it that through, or maybe I failed them, you know, you can't please yeah. everyone, you know, just, you know, that's part of the deal. Not everyone is going to like if you try to do something interesting or edgy or different, not everyone's going to like it. And that's OK. That's just part of the deal. You want to find people you want to speak to the people who get it, you know. Yeah. And and uh, let's go back to teaching. Um, how how has been um, how has it been teaching writing? Do you feel like that has affected uh, you as a writer or your work ethic as a writer? Uh, I don't know if it's affected my work ethic, but it's, uh, I always pretty disciplined, but, um, when you have to start like thinking like sort of seriously about like, Oh, what is dialogue or what is character? How do I approach this? What is the essence that I can, of a story or of a, of a novel or, or even writing itself that you want your students to get? Then you, it helps you because it, you start to clarify how you feel about things and what you think about things. And then you go like, oh, yeah, that is what I think about that. Dialogue isn't this. Dialogue is a, a manifestation of character. It's not about plot. It's not about uh, certainly not about exposition. And, and so even that little thing helps makes you a better writer all of a sudden because you're like, oh, that's what I've been doing. But now I know why or what's behind it. And um what was the feeling like uh, when you when one of your first uh, students uh, got a publishing deal and got published? Oh, that's the best. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that. It's like you know, I don't know. It's like it's like when you're the little league, you're the high school coach, and then they get drafted into the pros. You yeah. know, you're like, yeah, you know, I knew you were talented and you did the work, and 
And, and I've had a lot of students now get published. So, I mean, our program has been very successful with novelists. And uh, so it's, it's just great. I mean, it's really the best feeling. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's why you, it's, it's my favorite thing about why I do it. Yeah. So then I'm extra pushy. You know, finish this book, make it great, make me happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get on the bestseller list, sell even better than me, and I'll still be happy. Well, of course, it's yeah. not a. There's room for everybody. It's not a contest. Yeah. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for uh, coming on Drinks with Tony. I appreciate it. I will always have drinks with Tony whenever you ask. <laughs> great. Hi, thanks for listening, and check out this interview from the archives with director and photographer. Larry Clark. This is on Drinks with Tony back in the day. Enjoy. You're listening to Pirate Cat Radio, Drinks with Tony, 87.9 FM, San Francisco, Los Angeles, PirateCatRadio.com. Tonight on the program, Amy Sedaris from Strangers with Candy and Larry Clark, the director of What's Up Rockers. Want to try one of these? Sure. Want a drink? Yes. You're beautiful. How about you take off your shirt? Okay. Mind if I do this? Uh-uh. Want to, you know? All right. I don't have any protection. That's okay. Want to go somewhere else? Yeah. Want to stay out all night? Okay. Want me to drive? Sure. I don't have a license, okay? Whatever. Drinks with Tony, drinks with Tony, drinks with Tony. He's an happy drinks with Tony, drinks with Tony, drinks with Tony. He's a Hi, this is Larry Clark. Uh, my new film is What's Up Rockers, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Hi, this is Jerry Blank, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Mm, that sounds good. I'll have another round, please. Oh, I love her. <laughs> yeah. I like you. Yeah, I like you. Cat on Pirate Cat Radio, 87.9 FM, San Francisco, Los Angeles, PirateCatRadio.com. The track was called Smashed. Off his new release, ATF, released by Crunchpod Records. Go to crunchpod.com for more information regarding that. More suicidal electronic destruction coming up in the program. Um, I'm, in, I'm in one of those moods. Uh, I'm in a defiant, unrelenting, arr, mood. But before we get to, the, to more music, we're going to jump right into the... Uh, interviews on the show this week larry clark the director of kids as well as the latest film what's up rockers also amy sedaris um from strangers with candy and sister of david sedaris 10 years after kids larry clark hit the streets with of south central los angeles with what's up rockers which is based on the true life experiences of a group of Latino teenagers, revisiting some of the same immersion technique that resulted in his debut feature, Kids. Clark spent more than a year in the company of his young and earnest cast, resulting in a bold new work that shows a different side of youth and a different side of Larry Clark. Where Kids was hard hitting was hard hitting in its depiction of Lower Manhattan skateboarders growing up too fast. What's Up Rockers takes a different approach. Introducing a group of friends that isn't in any rush to grow up. These kids and What's Up Rockers love being young, and they're not afraid to have fun, even if it means having to fight to be themselves. They wear clothes tight and their hair is long. 
ride skateboards and play in punk rock bands instead of succumbing to the predominant hip-hop culture of their neighborhood in South Central, South Central Los Angeles. By the way, Larry Clark and the cast is, at, is in San Francisco tonight at the Lumiere. I think there's a 925 showing, and they're all going to be there for the screening of What's Up Rockers and doing a Q&A after. So, definitely go to that. And here is segment one of my interview with Larry Clark, You're listening to Power Cat Radio and Drinks with Tony. Well, first off, the the Billy Childish project is that uh, going to happen? Because uh, you were talking, uh, I think you were gonna, you were in talks about adapting My Fault. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I asked I asked Billy Childish. I was a, 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 a big fan of the music, and I, I actually went to. London and um, to do some press for a film and I said and and I didn't want to go and I said well I'll go if, if I can meet Billy Charlotte in, in my head so I so I found him you know I, I had some people research and they found him and so I met him and then um, because I'd read his autobiography My Fault which I think is the best title for an autobiography of all time My Fault I mean and um, and I met him and I asked him to do a screenplay for that and uh, and and he, and, and he did. He, he wrote a screenplay, and I and I haven't been able to even begin to try to get financing for that. But I would I would really like to make that film sometime. Cool. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, and how did this uh, project, um, What's Up Rockers, develop? You know, uh, my last film, Ken Park. I w- I, w- I was asked to photograph Tiffany Lemos uh, for the cover of this French magazine, Rebel, which was doing a which is a, a magazine that was going to come out um, when Ken Park opened in Paris. So, 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 so it was good press for the film, and they were going and she was going to be in the cover. They were going to give us ten pages. I was going to photograph it with some of the kids from Ken Park. So these French ladies flew to L.A., and Tiff and I went out to L.A. to do this. And but the kids from Ken Park went around so the other actors. So I said, "Well, let's find some skaters." So we went down to Venice Beach and met Porky and Kiko, who told us they were from South Central, from the ghetto. And um, um, so I started photographing them with her, uh, with Tiff, and uh, and they took us out to South Central where we met Jonathan and his brother Eddie and Carlos and and Kiko and Porky's friends. And we photographed them for like four days, and um, um, and the magazine gave us twenty three pages and two covers. They did a second cover of Jonathan, this fourteen year old Latino man child, and uh, and. I took the magazines back a couple months later, and they were amazed. The kids were amazed. Their parents were amazed. I was amazed. Uh, and the kids wanted to go skating again, so I took them skating. And then the next Saturday, Kiko called and said, we're ready to go skating again. So, so to cut to the chase, I took them skating like every day. For, I, mean, I mean, every Saturday for over a year. Got to know them really well, their stories, and I decided I wanted to make a film about them and, uh, early, like like long like. Uh, early in the a few months after I met him, I said I got to make a film about these kids. So What's Up Rockers is the first half of the film. We're recreating their stories. You know, it's all based on reality. Uh, and then the second half of the film, since I was taking them out of South Central all the time, and South Central is isolated by race. It's all black and Latino. No white people there. White people are afraid to go to South Central. Um, they've never been there. The white people in LA have never been to South Central, which is a big part of LA, which I thought was interesting too. Um, so the second half of the film, uh, we take them out and they meet some rich white girls that want to have sex with them and they get up in the Beverly Hills with the girls and then uh, a lot of stuff happens and they have to run and they jump over a fence in Beverly Hills and who do they find in the backyards of Beverly Hills? And um, 
Um, so that's kind of kind of where it goes. It it it, it starts out recreating the reality of South Central, uh, and then it, it turns into this action chase adventure slapstick comedy, dark humor um, uh, adventure. Um, and so, so I'm mixing genres like crazy. It really it really turns out uh, 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 that it really works. This this is a good film that really works. It's a lot of fun and. Uh, um, and we're also tackling or talking about, uh, you know, um, a lot of different things. Um, uh, the film's about racism. The film's about um, peer pressure in the ghetto. I mean, I mean, I mean, the the street style in the ghetto is to be gangster, to dress gangster with baggy clothes and cut off your hair and listen to gangster rap and uh, act gangster and smoke pot. And uh, these kids just just want to be kids. These these are like Latino kids who listen to punk rock and play punk rock and wear tight clothes and wear their hair long and just have fun, you know. And um, uh, they have to fight to be themselves because they're different because they're not conforming to the, to the street style of the ghetto. And the peer pressure in the ghetto is probably stronger than any other place. Um, um, so, so, so that was interesting. So, um, um, and we also uh, touch on the racial politics of the ghetto, which I didn't know about. So it's... It's it's really an interesting film, and I think that you're going to um, meet some amazing young kids and uh, who are so compelling. They're going to pull you in, and you're going to and 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 you're going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a long-winded answer. It's a long-winded answer, right? <laughs> That's fine. Um, did you have were, were the, all the parents comfortable right away with you uh, filming their kids? Uh, well, you know, I was, uh, you know, you know, uh, as I say, I, I knew the kids for a year and a half before I started filming. Uh, I was out there a lot, uh, really, a, 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 a tremendous amount of time, and everybody got to know me, and I'm cool. I mean, if if I wasn't cool, I couldn't get within a mile of these people, you know, and um, 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 so it was a process, you know, it was a very organic process, the way the film uh, evolved, you know, from my first idea my first idea was, I just wanted you to see these kids. I said, these kids should be in film. You never see kids like this in film, and they should be. And, and so that was the, uh, uh, that was the initial uh, idea. Right, right. Um, and f- when you were filming in South, South Central, did you have any uh, like security issues? Was uh, you know, anything go down while you were? You know, the, uh, the people of South Central were very, very good, for, good to us and uh, uh, very welcoming, and, and, and it was a great experience filming there. And, uh, and I think they saw what I was doing, and I was, I was working with Latinos from, from, from the community. Um, um, and as I said, I was out there a long time. When um, Jonathan li- lived in this neighborhood that was really, you know, you know heavy street, you know, heavy gang members in, like, every house, and... Uh, uh, and he lived in the back house, and the house in front was was gangbangers. And and I would go see him all the time. Um, um, uh, and he told me one day that the gangbangers asked who I was, uh, and um, um, who's that old white guy that's that's always coming around here? Um, and and he, and he and he told me I was a filmmaker, and I was and I was, and I was okay. Uh, and they said, well, it's good you tell us because we were going to shoot some, but it's next time we saw them because they thought I was an undercover cop. So uh, it was, uh, you know, Jonathan and I also were, st- were standing on the sidewalk one day. We went over to White Boy's house, uh, um, and we were standing on the sidewalk waiting for the kid to come out, and there was a drive-by right next to us. One car blocked off the street, another car came real slow right by us and starts popping, popping caps at the house next door. And we're standing out on the sidewalk in the bright sunlight, 
right there and just watching, you know, it was it was bizarre. Yeah. Bizarre and then and the white boy came out of the house and, and we told him what happened. He said, Oh, that happens all the time. Yeah. So it's like crazy. Yeah. All right. These kids are so compelling and I think that this is um, far and away my most accessible film and uh, uh, and it's fun, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of laughs. Yeah, and that's quite different from your previous work. Do you, do you feel that maybe um, are are you a more optimistic person as you're getting older, or I'm more op- optimistic after meeting these kids. Have, right. have, these kids have kind of changed my life and kind of shown shown me, you know, the correct way to live and the best way to live because these kids live in such a dangerous environment. Um, um, where they can be, you know, shot walking to school, you know. Um, um, one of the bands in the film, The Retaliates, uh, uh, the, uh, the guitar player Edgar got shot the other day. A bullet went in his eye. He lost an eye. It's, the bullet's lodged in his brain. He's paralyzed on one, one side of his, of, his, uh, of his body for nothing. He was just eating a taco, and the gangbangers started shooting, and he got caught in the crossfire, which happens all the time. And, and this girl from Locke High School, where we filmed, was coming out of school at 3.15 in the afternoon the other day, and um, there was a drive-by, and the guy missed and shot her in the neck. And, and this is when all the kids are coming out of school at 3.15, and she died two weeks later. So, um, but, 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 but these kids navigate this territory and, um, um, uh, and live in the present, you know. I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, they're really, you know, kids live in the present anyway. Uh, but these kids are... are, are, are are living life to the fullest and having fun, and um, um, and when I get grumpy, they just say, "Come on, Larry, it's just life, you know, you know." And maybe, maybe because of the of where they live, and uh, um, um, that that contributes to it. But uh, um, these kids don't sit around and mope. Oh, poor me, I'm poor. I don't have any money, you know. We're, we're poor, you know, and. Uh, um, and um, uh, uh, they just live, you know, and uh, they set a great example. Yeah, yeah. And and I didn't know about the whole Latino punk rock scene. Um, the, the 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 music and the soundtrack is amazing, and I I guess the kids are actually in one of those bands or in a couple of those bands that you filmed. Yeah, they uh, uh, Jonathan and Carlos, uh, Louis, uh, uh, Jonathan's brother Eddie, Eddie. Uh, uh, and Porky um, have this band, band the Revolts, yeah. uh, which is just like their little garage band, a bedroom band, and um, um, uh, and there's a big resurgence of punk rock in the Latino communities around the world. I understand, and especially, uh, well, uh, in South Central, um, um, uh, the soundtrack for the film is these local punk rock, uh, uh, Latino ghetto punk rock bands, and the music's incredible. You know, they're unpublished bands. Um, um, and in the film, uh, um, Jonathan and Carlos's band play play a tune in the film, uh, uh, um, uh, but it's but it's great uh, great music, and um, uh, uh, I wanted I I wanted that to be the soundtrack of the film. And I mean, they have these backyard gigs like in Compton. I would I would I would go, and someone opens up their backyard and charges two bucks to get in and all these kids come and um, all punked out uh-huh. you know you know with the spiked hair all in black and the girls with the black lipstick and just oh, and just wow. you know you know you know punked out and uh, just have the most fun and all these bands come and play and it's oh. just just an amazing scene and uh, uh, the soundtrack of the movie will be out also in a, uh, 
Uh, so you can you can you know get that also. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Um, are um after this film, do any of the kids seem like they're uh gonna break out and have acting aspirations after this? Well, I'm actually writing 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 a um a new film for uh, Kiko and Jonathan because they're so terrific. Uh-huh. Uh, where they'll play characters, they won't play themselves; they'll play characters. And uh, I got a great idea for a story, and so hopefully I'll make that film next. Uh, um, Hen- Henry Winterstern, who financed this film uh, and who produced this film, will produce this next film. Uh, um, the working title is Wild Child. Um, I, I, I don't know if that's going to be the final uh, title or not, but uh, um, and he'll produce this film and finance it. So yeah, you know, you know, uh, the, uh, the kids will kind of go with the flow. You know, you know, the film's just not coming out, and we'll see what happens. But 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 they're so talented, natural actors and. Uh, um, Porky's amazing too. He has a scene where he cries, and um, and the other kids bet me I couldn't get him to do it. They said uh-huh. you're not going to get Porky to cry. You're not going to get him to do this scene. I said, well, you wait. So um, uh, Carlos owes me ten bucks. He's <laughs> Porky's amazing too. So how did, how did you get Porky to cry? I just talked to him. You know, I, said, uh-huh. you know, I just you know I just told him what I wanted and yeah. t- you know and worked with him a bit. Huh. He got into it. It's a very funny scene, but it's based on something that really happened. Uh, so, uh-huh. as I say, the first half of the film is we're like recreating uh, uh, these kids' lives, and they're actually acting. They're actually playing themselves like a year younger, six months younger, eight months younger. Because, um, uh, as I said, the, the, it's, it's about this moment in time where they're growing up, but they're still kids. And... Uh, um, and we had to make the film when we made it because they were they were growing up, and just in time we made it. It's just just at the right time. Yeah. And what and what keeps you from, uh, what keeps you uh, gravitating toward the story, towards the stories of teenagers um, in your filmmaking? Well, it's kind of my territory, isn't it? You know, I'm, I mean, if someone else was doing it, I wouldn't have to. And I seem to do it good, and people like. Uh, like the work, and and it was just interesting once again that to <laughs> to look at um, uh, kids growing up in a different way, in a different environment. You know how they grow up. You know, you know how they handle what's um, you know you know what's been given them, like their lot and uh, lot in life, and uh, um, and these kids handle it uh, a difficult, difficult uh, environment to grow up in uh, with. Uh, you know, with good humor and um, uh, uh, and uh, and I think probably you know I want to be relevant. You know, I think it's always been a part of my work. You know, I don't want to be uh, um, you know some old guy that's uh, you know that you know that's not relevant anymore. Yeah. And um, 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 which is just part of it. I mean, that's not the reason, but it, but it, but it, but but it seems to be part of it that I'm interested. And what's going on? I mean, I make social comment, and uh, um, uh, and I see, you know, um, I'm trying to show some, you know, some truth, some reality, and and some truth. I've always been interested in that, and um, and it's and it's also a reaction, I think, to all the um, you know the nonsense that we see that's not too real, and it's. Uh, um, um, 
I don't know, man. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just making work. You know, no matter what I've done in my life, I've always made work. Yeah. Uh, that seems to be why I'm here. The most important reason uh-huh. um, that I do it is, is, a, is, it seems to be the reason why I'm on this earth to do this. Yeah. I kind of look at it that way. Well, Larry Clark, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you, man. This, uh, this was, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. 